Hi, Luna. Hi, Mom. Welcome to You Hear Big Girls, our Attack on Titan podcast, where we'll be discussing Chapter 110. I'm Mom Taku, best known from Tumblr, where I've been blogging about this series for more than four years. And my name is Luna, but on Reddit, I'm better known as Wings of Moonlit Night, and there I upload everything related to the chapter polls, but also to the anime polls. So this month, Luna and I are excited to have Renan as our guest. We met Renan initially through his work with the SCNK, which is the group that does the manga, uh, the coloring of the manga chapters. But now we enjoy discussing the series with him on Reddit and also various Discord servers. Welcome, Renan. Hello. I'm happy to participate in the podcast, finally. I go by as Renan NMH Reddit on the subreddit of SCNK. And I have been discussing the series since 2014, I think, right at the middle of the Uprising arc. Yeah, so we're very happy to have you here today with us. First, we're going to discuss Chapter 1010. It's called Counterfeit, which is interesting, actually, because if you look at the original Japanese title, the word being used is actually better translated as imposter or liar. So let's discuss about who is being truthful and who isn't in Chapter 110 counterfeit. Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting. I don't know if you all noticed, but on the title page of the manga, right next to the word counterfeit, we actually have Zeke and Peek basically looking at us as the reader. I don't want to say they're breaking the fourth wall, but mm -hmm. they certainly are making eye contact with us. And that word counterfeit is right there. And I was thinking about that. I mean, this is a chapter where essentially dishonesty or being an imposter abounds. And we see that with Zeke, I think. I mean, I don't trust him. And with Peek as well, since she's, you know, clearly going undercover, being someone who she's not. But it's possible we have other people who are also being counterfeit or fakes, including Yelena, Anyon Kapan, maybe Armin. Um, there's been some discussion about that. So why don't we start off with the beginning of the chapter, where we learned from Zeke about what happened at Rakugo Village. And I was just wondering, what did you guys think? Were you satisfied with that? Did it surprise you? I mean, they're introducing, you know, gas technology now. I mean, in World War One, I, I think it was when gas technology for weapons, chemical weapons, was, was first introduced. So I think in the thematic of the series, it's like the most fitting thing that they could have done. Uh, more than Zeke coming in as a doctor and like injecting everyone and like uh, we have seen that people get a bit uh, lethargic or lose control of their bodies so if Zeke was trying to vaccinate everyone and they just started falling over nobody would trust him so I guess in this one fell swoop of using the gas weapon it explains it the best yeah honestly I was kind of surprised to see that they used gas it makes sense, though, because to make all the inhabitants of uh, a cargo village um, turn into, you know, the mindless titans, you would need a lot of spinal fluid. I mean, you would have to kind of extract it from Zeke, like, on the daily for, like, months on end, I'm, I'm guessing. And, you know, with the gas, they would only need a little bit. Uh, my question then, you know, as a result of this... Um, reveal is why are they still using the injections because the injections seem to be quite full of fluid so is it all spinal fluid is something else mixed in there or um and, and why don't they use like gas in general if they usually have a big group of, of people they want to turn into titans I, it seems more effective 
It's interesting, too, that wasn't World War One. you all know your history better than me, I'm sure, but that's when technology really took off. So I'm expecting, I'm anticipating that a lot of the technology we're seeing now is new even to them. Like if the Shingeki series were to continue on, we'd continue to see technological improvements. So maybe I don't I don't want to think this was a test because clearly they knew what they were doing. They had gas masks. They've done this before. But, you know, I expect that in the in-story universe that the technology that's available to them is all new and and being developed just like it was in our own timeline during World War One. Somebody else pointed out to me that the gas masks were um, definitely World War One era that uh, he did his research. Yeah, we, I was just going to talk about that because we were on the process of coloring that page. And uh, one of the colorists was, uh, he wasn't sure of uh, how to color it exactly. So we searched up some some references for World War One masks and like they're really very precise on how they did it. And there's a lot of schematics and Isayama made even sure to to make that pouch that the soldiers are using, that there is a filter filter in there. So it's quite interesting how he he knows what he's doing on the technological uh, aspect of the series. Yeah, I meant to mention that before. We'll definitely link, because uh, I imagine by the time we're recording this on uh, Friday, October 12th, but I would imagine by the time we publish it, it'll be a few weeks, maybe the SCNK chapter will be done as well, and we'll be sure to link to that so you know people can see what you're talking about. It's something that we try to to take some some cool references because it also I don't know it adds to the fuel of the uh, of the era you know yeah definitely there's something else that um, we received in the first few pages of that chapter was the explanation a little bit of explanation about how the paths and the coordinate works and I'm gonna be honest I mean I know I don't guess it was new information it was just sort of a little more explanation than what we'd had before I'm still I don't know if I was more confused or less confused by it. I, you know, I'm still trying, torn between thinking, is this magic? Is this, you know, is this blood? How, how are we ever going to get, you know, a, a real concrete explanation of why Zeke is able to do this and, and why the LDN people in particular, you know, why these connections can be made? I don't know how you guys felt about that. So I was making some theories. There is quite a few interesting things that we maybe we can get out of this because maybe the power of turning people into titans isn't something inherent to the founding titan but only to those of royal blood and what was the impression is that through a marked coordinate that is made uh, when somebody any subject of ymir enters in contact with zeke's blood the power of the titans can be sent to it but that doesn't seem to be a power that the founding titan has, but only those of royal blood. So how do you think, is that going to affect things when the Jaeger brothers do their fist bump? I mean, is that is that an indication of what we're going to see when they try to use the power together? It might be an indication that Zeke has more control over, the, over their interaction than Armin proposed before. Because it was an interaction that was born out of uh, Eren uh, entering into contact with uh, Dina, which is a mindless titan that has no will of its own. So maybe the interaction will be quite different when he does it with Z. Yeah, it seems like you need to be a titan and of royal blood. So if you just have royal blood, but you're not a titan, you cannot control the titans. 
And we can assume that all of the Wall Titans were created with royal blood. I mean, we know for a fact they were created with royal blood. They're not with Zeke's blood, but they're with his bloodline. Somebody pointed out that the Japanese were making a, uh, this theory that uh, we have never seen the royal blood separated from the founding titan before. So we are not sure what is the founding titan's power and what is the royal blood's power. There isn't a clear division of that yet. And knowing Isayama, it'll all be a surprise. It'll be not what we're expecting. So that much we know. What it hasn't been clear is if the founding titan itself can transform people into titans. But they, they theorize that what it has control over is the paths and the connections between the, the audience. Yeah, but Zeke doesn't have the founding titan and he can go through paths to create his mindless titans that only listen to him. Yeah, but that's only when he's connected uh, using his uh, own spinal fluid. So basically, yeah. he has to manually insert the, the spinal fluid into, into the subjects of Ymir so that he can uh, establish that connection. Then, and only then, he can use paths to send the power of the Titans. And to be honest, I think this explanation, it's kind of confusing and the way that Isayama established it, because he hasn't made it very clear what each of those words mean, what paths, the coordinate, and the power of the Titans exactly means. Well, I, I know it's uh, confusing to me, and I think even we asked in the poll whether or not this clarified things for people or not, and um, so far, 50% of people did say it clarified things, but an equal number were just as confused as ever. So I suppose it's something we're going to get more about. I mean, he's definitely choosing his words carefully. I mean, there's going to be a distinction made between these powers and um, how they're used. And, you know, he's giving us, as always, information a little bit at a time. So then we can have the big reveal and it all falls into place. I'm hoping that's how it works with this. I'm hoping that this is something that, you know, we get a clear idea of uh, and an understanding of why the Eldian race is even like this. Um, I hope that that's not one of the mysteries that is left vague. But I like the, the gate of possibilities that this reveal opens, because if it's true that he has more control over the founding Titan than Eren does, he can basically go and do whatever he wants when he finally meets up with Eren, basically. And it would be very interesting if everything Eren is trying to accomplish to you know, trying to keep his friends safe. If Zeke will just kind of like ruin all of his plans. If that doesn't happen, I'm going to be so disappointed. Like that, that is, <laughs> that is my vision. This cannot be a good man. Zeke cannot be a good man. He has to totally just screw everybody over or I'm not going to be happy. I mean, just like, you know, to see Aaron after everything that he's done, you know, and everything that he wants to accomplish, to see it all crumble and fall apart. I think it would be very interesting. I wonder if Aaron actually, maybe it can happen like the opposite, you know? Maybe Aaron has something else planned that is more drastic than Zeke could have ever imagined. Or maybe there will, there will be a conflict between them and it won't exactly go as either of them planned. There's a lot yeah, of possibilities probably. in what Isayama can do with this. And I think the setup that he has done over the, the past four chapters has been excellent. And even what we're little we're getting, I mean, we're still, we're getting no insight into what Aaron is thinking, but we're getting little bits of Zeke. And I absolutely think that, you know, the chapter title counterfeit, you know, and him having this conversation 
with Levi, trying to convince Levi that his intentions are ultimately good. I don't think we're supposed to be accepting that. I know some people are, but um, I mean, he is the counterfeit. He's the one who's saying one thing and doing another. One also interesting panel in the scene is that panel in which Peek is looking at Zeke. And I've been thinking like, it points out to how she has been surveilling Zeke since the beginning, you know, like her gigantic eye looking at him, searching for any any amount of rebellious sentiment or anything of the sort. And we know that Peek uh, paid close attention to Elena and all of the people that were very supportive of Zeke. I think it's an interesting thing to point out. Yeah, and I mean, jumping to the end of the chapter, so she opens the chapter and then she closes it, and again, she's watching. Like, she's been there long enough that she's tracking the movements of the Survey Corps. Yeah, I'm just... I kind of wonder how she got there so quickly and um, how they got pa- how she got past all the security on the island. Well, I don't think that, that it's that hard, because if you see the size of the walls and consider that their, their coast is even bigger, and that at, the, at this moment... They only have one port. And yeah. Peak's Titan is very flexible. She can go underwater. She can uh, go very fast through planes. And she can walk, uh, she can scale the wall. Yeah, I think the wall is the easiest probably at this point because I don't think the, um, the garrison is um, surveying anything at this point because there's no Titans left. Well, just think about the fields in the uh, eastern and western or northern Paradas, you know, North, there's yeah. nobody there. I think that at, at this point, it's not a, really a question of how did she get there. I think it's obvious that it's really easy for Pig to just infiltrate Paradis. And especially since she's a Titan who can stay in her form for a very long time, she doesn't wear out like the others do. So I think the prevailing theory is that maybe she even uh, was in her Titan form and swam across, um, <laughs> you know, which would be ridiculous for anybody else. But for Peaks, maybe not. I mean, he's already established that she can stay in that form for months. OK, so we should probably move on. And um, yeah, we also see Yelena discussing um, her meeting with Aaron this chapter. Uh, while she's having a little cup of tea together with Pixis. What did you think of her um, recounting what happened on that day? I'll be honest with you. I I was believing, I mean, until we got to the part of the chapter where Pixis told her to, you know, throw a little bit of truth in with the lies, I was sort of buying her story. I think it's something that we have been seeing that Yelena is somebody completely idealistic and I wonder if it if it, she's actually lying, you know, because she hasn't shown anything else but pure idealism for Zeke. And we know from what Pete said that she was completely devoted to him. So to see her being as devoted to his brother, which has a similar power and similar capabilities, I don't think it's that out of line for her. So you don't think she's lying? You don't think Pixis is right that she's um, lying about things? I think maybe she is just a stupidly honest person. That It is a possibility, I think. I mean, unless he's trying to play good cop, bad cop with her, then, uh, you know, he's definitely convinced that she's not telling the whole story. And I loved her expression in that panel when he says that, because she kind of looks, you know, frustrated like uh, she's been had. But I think you're right. I mean, we definitely need to be 
questioning everybody in this chapter. We should probably be side-eyeing them all. And maybe the obvious ones that we're not supposed to be trusting, you know, maybe there's going to be a twist. I think it's like half truth, half lies she's been telling. Like like you said, Renan, obviously she's very fanatic and you, you can kind of see her break character at points where she's like uh, all about the Jaeger brothers and completely devoted to them. But then when she's like recounting her meeting with Aaron and uh, what the plan was she had with Zeke and everything she did uh, on the island, then I feel like she's more disingenuous. Yeah, I do think she has two expressions that we've seen. One is kind of the half eyes, you know, looking away. And then there's the bright Mm -hmm. eyes staring straight on. And maybe that's her tell. So like one of the sentences she said was that none of the other volunteers knew about her meeting with him. So she's immediately taking all the blame for this meeting with Aaron, which kind of ties into what Anyang Kapan said in his conversation with her that, you know, she was the leader. She was the one um, making the decisions and not always telling everybody everything. So I feel like that's probably, I don't know. Is she acting alone? Did she act alone in seeing Aaron? What do you think? Absolutely not. (laughs) No, of course not. But yeah, I'm still very curious as what they discuss because of course the only flashback we get of Aaron in that moment is him with like his half long hair and his black trench coat. But he's not actually saying anything. So we still don't know anything about his motivations or what swayed him to go to Marley and prepare the attack there on Liberio. So we did ask the fandom in the poll which statements they were suspicious of in Yelena's conversation with Pixis. And the two that got at least 50% of the vote was the one statement where she said that she only wanted to be recognized by the Jaeger brothers. I think most people realize that that's not all she wants. She's got some vengeance in there as well. She wants Marley to suffer. And then the other statement that people were suspicious of was that Yelena did everything for Eldia. And I think those two are pretty safe bets as lies. There's no way she's in this for the people of Eldia. She's in this for, I I would say, her vengeance and also her idolization of Zeke Jaeger. Yeah, I think that's that's the ones that that I think are clear that she's so devoted to Zeke. And I think that maybe she, I don't know, I think that maybe she, maybe she, she does feel something similar to, to Aaron because they are similar in that sense. And they have been becoming more similar with each chapter that goes by. Yeah, they seem like they're in lockstep at this point, Aaron and Zeke are. So I do think, yeah, I think that her fangirl over Aaron and about what he accomplished in... Marley was certainly sincere. I mean, he and and I mean, I Aaron's not my favorite character. And yet watching him perform in Marley with those repeated transformations and just how smart he was in battle, I was fangirling, too. So I don't blame her for, you know, for having those feelings about how he exceeded her expectations, because I didn't appreciate him dive bombing into the crowd. But once he was in those Titan battles, he exceeded my expectations as well. I don't know. I just find like this part of the, the chapter was the most complicated actually to get any in concrete information out of. I just don't know exactly what it what it's, it's a lie and what is sincere here. I think she's hard to read. Do you guys like her as a character? What do you think? I mean, I think that Elena and Onyan Kapon have been one of the most interesting characters that have been introduced as of late. I think that as the series went on, I think that Isayama got a got a lot better in designing his characters and making them more complex and 
deep in a sense that they have their own goals, they have their own ideas, their own choices to make. And I think in the they have been like important in the past what five chapters and they have done already so much and we already know a lot about them. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's one of the criticisms. This is off topic, but one of the criticisms that we hear sometimes about the Attack on Titan manga is that, you know, some of the character designs are very bland. You know, Moblet is one of those characters that people really don't remember him for anything. You know, some of the early character designs, you can't tell one from another. But as the as the manga has progressed, looking at characters like Yelena, Anyonkapan, Peak, I mean, he's definitely widened out as an artist and is making the characters very much distinguishable and interesting. And, you know, they just leap off the page more so than some of those early characters. Yeah, the first half of the manga, it was really hard for me to distinguish certain characters. But I, yeah, I think she she's an interesting design, especially with her haircut. Personality-wise, I'm not a big fan of her at this moment. And also the fact that she has like she's two meters tall. <laughs> That's the only good thing. She's about probably her. the yes. tallest character in the series. She's one of the big girls. We like the big girls. I don't know. I just I just feel there's like a lot to like like about Yelena. She seems mischievous and extremist and highly devoted. You know, in a way that it's that I feel it's mo a lot more interesting than Mikasa was ever was, you know? Because there is kind of a parallel between Mikasa and Yelena in the sense that Mikasa is very devoted to Eren, while Yelena is very devoted to Zeke. And the way that she portrays it, the, the action that the, her actions and how she behaves about it is a lot more interesting than anything that Mikasa ever did. I feel like they're kind of similar in the sense that they are very one-dimensional in that regard. You know, there's not a lot of their own personality and their own character development at play here. Now, for Yurena, that's fine because she's a relatively new character. But, you know, especially for Mikasa, that has been a gripe I've had with this manga for a very long time. Like, she hasn't really developed. And then when we finally found out about her heritage it's kind of like brushed aside and not really, it's not really an important part of her character either at this point. They're a bit bland for me, both of them, honestly. That's why I'm not fond of either of them at this point. So what about Anyang Kapan? Are you fond of him? Um, I feel like we haven't really seen enough about him to really, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, the jury is still out on this one. Well, let's move into that aspect of the story. So after tea time with Yelena, we went right into, transitioned right into tea time with Anyang Kapan, where we got more of Yelena's story told through his eyes. And in the chapter poll, we asked if people trusted him. And overwhelmingly, well, close to 50% said yes, and only 17% said no. The rest were undecided. So we have at least, what, 80% of the fandom, 83% of the fandom who's willing to at least give him the benefit of the doubt. Has he earned that? Should we be side-eyeing this character as well? Renan, I know you had some thoughts about that. Well, there was a post on the subreddit that commented on how Onion Kapon's behavior seems a bit shifty and some signs that may point out to him not being as trustworthy as, it, as he seems, like the fact, the fact that he's playing cards which it, uh, implies somebody that can be a bit more mischievous and that can like put up a poker face, you know, uh, that plays a game of chance and all of that thematics that comes comes along with playing cards, you know. The fact that, that he is uh, sweating all the time, 
that he plays <laughs> yeah. with uh, Hanji's guilt over imprisoning him. So some people have been feeling like Onion Kapan may be the best liar out of him and Elena, and that he may be more, even more dangerous in that case. And actually, in the first time that I read the, the chapter, I 100% believed in, in Onion Kapan. I don't know, he just seems like a more humanitarian character. Uh, he's more sympathetic. And maybe overall, he's a more fun person than Yelena is, you know? Ever since we saw him in the chapter Volunteers, in which he talks about his conception of God, and he explains why he's black to Sasha and all of that. I just find it like he's a much more lighthearted person. And in that sense, maybe he's more, uh, maybe he, he gives off the air that he's more trustworthy in comparison to the other ones. I certainly think so, because the first time I read the chapter, I was like, yeah, it, his story makes sense. Until you kind of go back and look at it again, and you kind of see that he's like channeling Bertold a little bit in terms of how much he's sweating. Well, Hanji is sweating as well. So let's, I mean, she's... M maybe it's hot. <laughs> no, but seriously, you can compare it in some other panels in which Hanji is seemingly normal and they're having a much more uh, calmer conversation. But still, Onion Kampan is sweating in every panel. What's interesting is Isayama, in each of these instances, has drawn a character that we trust, listening to them and making a decision. In the case of Yelena, Pixis says, I don't believe you. You know, try a little bit of truth once in a while. In the case of Hanji, she gets right in his face, stares at him and says, yes, I believe you. So I wonder if we're supposed to trust our characters here. I mean, Hanji is someone that we've been led to. I mean, I, I think in recent chapters maybe they've taken a hit because they don't seem as competent as they did or they seem maybe that they've lost their footing as well but in this chapter hanji definitely makes the decision that anyang kapan is team parodies well that's what she says to him but does she really mean that oh, now we're going like 4d chess <laughs> i don't know she's really good at interrogations as we've seen this season in the anime so who knows well i don't know maybe I, I just feel like Hanji, maybe she's uh, she got a little bit more close to Onion Kapon, so she would have a harder time not believing in him. Well, I'm definitely of the opinion. I know for me as a reader, I'm trusting Hanji and Pixis on this. I mean, I maybe maybe my trust is betrayed, but I'm definitely of the mind. I mean, when you pointed out Onion Kapon playing cards at first, that's definitely a flag, right? He's a gambler. He's a card player. What you said about Poker Face. I mean, that's definitely in the back of my mind now, and I don't see that leaving anytime soon. But for the most part, I'm going to take this you know, me personally on the surface that Yelena is not to be trusted and Anyang Kapan is, but I would not be at all surprised if that, um, even if it doesn't get flipped upside down, if there's a lot more nuance to it than just that. And I mean, I think they are setting us up to the, the superficial idea is that Yelena is between them and that Anyang Kapan is to be trusted. But I don't think they would lie to each other how, for how much time ha they have been comrades. They basically have the same, most of the same uh, objectives, right? 
Well, you'd think that, but like you were saying, during their ideological conversation with Armin a few chapters ago, you know, they definitely have different visions of God. And we all know that religion can, I mean, he, he thinks that God is um, somebody who created diversity and Yelena, you know, Zeke is her God. So it could be that they've been side-eyeing each other a long time. And this is his chance to throw her under the bus. So, yeah, and I think that one of uh, one of the also ideas is that if Yelena is not working alongside the, uh, not being as vocal about all of her plans to, to the volunteers, maybe she actually created another faction with the Marleans, and that would imply that maybe Zeke and her are still somewhat loyal to Marley. Or maybe they are using them as a way to advance their plans and parades that maybe the rest of the volunteers wouldn't agree to. Like the, the, the theory that people have been poisoning the wine all around Parades, that the, the wine the Marleyan wine wine that they brought in, that it has been poisoning poisoned with uh Zeke's serum. So that would make sense within that, that plan of hers. Well, I think, you know, Elena is pretty much on Zeke's side and they might have their own motivations. But I think the other volunteers join because they want to have their country back. They don't want to be oppressed by Marley anymore. And I think Zeke and Elena might have very different intentions of what they want to accomplish. But what exactly that is, I'm not quite sure yet. But I don't think it's just ridding the world of Marley and everyone can live and be happy and marry. I don't think that's their end goal. There's something really strange about it because uh, Zeke has a plan that it's kind of hard to read because he has only one mm. year left. So to understand what would he gain from this, it's very difficult. And especially in the way that he has been keeping his secrets. Hmm. I'm curious too to where this will lead. I still wonder if there's any way that he can prolong his life. I don't think so. I think it would just break a lot of the thematics in the in the story. Yeah, no, but maybe he believes it or something. There must be something that motivates him because, you know, even if he accomplished what he wants, he won't be able to enjoy it for very long. He will pass away shortly after. So what is so important to him that he's risking this much to accomplish it? Well, there's only one way that we know that any shifter can live on after they after they uh, die because of the curse. That is passing on a will, just like the first king did. So maybe if Zeke has a plan to make a, a will of his own that will be inherited with the, the Beast Titan, maybe he could live on more, you know? Like in spirit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if he could control policy for years to come, I mean, the founding Titan essentially did. He basically wrote a manifesto and was able to control governmental policy on Paradis for a hundred years. Maybe Zeke's intention is something similar. That's interesting. Yeah, to rule from the beyond. Well, it will be interesting to see what his um, his true intentions are, as well as uh, Yelena's and uh, Onyankopon's. And Aaron's. We have so many characters now True. that we just do oh. not know. I mean, I, if we were to make a list of things that we don't know at this point, or I, I, going back to the beginning of the series, I mean, one time I tried and, you know, you get tired after like the 400th item. So here we are again, at least two thirds, three fourths way through the manga with more questions and answers yeah. about who these characters are, what they're trying to accomplish. 
And, um, you know, I think we see where the story is going, but who those final players are and what their intentions are is still very much in the dark. Yeah, I, I don't think I expected that this far in the story we would still have so many questions. And yet, here we are. Here we are. So maybe it's time to move on to the next meeting in this chapter with possibly another liar. Armin and Ani having their uh, moment while Hitch interrupts them. So I think the prevailing conversation that I saw is why Mm -hmm. did Armin touch the crystal? What was he trying to achieve from that? And the fandom is almost completely divided on that. In the chapter poll, we asked that. And 29% say that he actually wanted to see if he could unlock memories. 23% have a shippy spin. And 24% think Bert is involved in this. So where do you guys stand? I was really surprised to see those results, by the way, because I know that's what he says. Like, oh, no, I was just trying to, you know, trigger some memories. But he's so flustered and he's so shocked that Hitch caught him in that moment. Like, if he was truly trying to channel some memories, that was not that would not have been his reaction. So what do you what do you think it was? Um, well, I think the last time we saw them, he was trying to reach out to her to find someone who could understand his position. I think he just feels really alone and there's no one really around him to understand him. So I think it was definitely trying to get somewhat closer to her. It also gave me a little bit of a creepy vibe, like he was somewhat touching her, but not really because she's encased in a crystal. And also his reaction afterwards kind of made me go like, maybe he was being a little bit creepy. But 10% of the fandom selected he's being a creep. Yeah, I mean, that is like reaching out and touching. I mean, even though she's encased in crystal, it still is definitely a little bit of a strange moment for Armin. I, I've been very surprised at the number of people who think that Armin's sweating and shaking and, uh, you know, what need to touch her is that Armin is becoming Bert, which I do not agree with. I think that, you know, we've always seen these facets of Armin. He has moments where he's very strong and he has mm-hmm. moments where he's, you know, reacts just like this, you know, especially under stress. He seems to revert back to this sort of like cowering, timid, uncertain person. There are other times where he's not. So I don't see this as a major shift in his characterization like some people do. And I'm just really against the idea. I guess I've always found the idea of of people being influenced by their Titan predecessor being maybe not the best developed storyline. So it's one that I tend to disregard. Well, I think the the best explanation would be actually a mix of everything that people pointed out. I think he was being driven into solitude by all the recent events, and his influence with Bert and also his own memories of Annie made him reach out to somebody that uh, that he could, you know, vent to. Because Armin didn't ever never did have this infatuation with Annie, you know? We never saw that. It's something that Bert had. So I guess he inherited a bit of it. Maybe it was just uh, just a little bit of was enough for him to change his idea because he had some connections with Annie at the end of the, the female Titan arc. He had a bit of some interactions. So maybe he already uh, respected her and he just needed a little nudge to make him be more interested in her. 
So it's not like he's being controlled by birth memories, but he, he was slightly influenced. And in the situation that he is, vulnerable, vulnerable as he is, and feeling alone and having a hard time understanding the rest of his of Aaron's actions, I guess it's a mix of all of this that drove him to search company in any. And I also think that he, maybe he hoped that he would be able to transmit his memories or form a connection with her by touching her. So I think it's, it's all a mix, you know. I don't think uh, any of these ideas are wrong. They're all just mixed in in this situation that Armin is having. Yeah, I think his emotional vulnerability right before this moment is certainly part of it. I mean, he, you know, we've seen where these characters um, who've done these atrocious things want to be judged. We haven't seen it from Aaron yet, but certainly from Reiner, Bertold, and now Armin, where they're looking for somebody who's experienced what they've experienced to, I don't want to use the word to judge them, but, you know, basically, yeah, to, to be able to see it through their eyes, to have somebody who's going to look at them and say, yes, I get it. I understand you're not a terrible person. You did these terrible things, but um, I've been there too. And I do think he was hoping to get that with Annie, which makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I don't think there needs to be like, you know, a crush involved in that. I don't think that that necessarily needs to be there. They definitely have a connection now. And now that he holds Bertold's Titan power, even more of a connection. I think so. I'm sure he inherited a lot of memories that involved her as well. But I think when... You know, if you're spending that much time locked in a room with one person who doesn't talk back, I think it's also easy to maybe idealize them a little bit or make them into the person you want them to be instead of who they truly are. So I wouldn't be surprised if he did develop a little crush on her, but how sincere the crush is or, you know, how reflective it is of like who she is as a person, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. I think he's... The main reason for him reaching out to her is, you know, to ease his own soul, to really, you know, find someone who can understand him, even if she doesn't talk back. I mean, he basically established the, the room that Annie is, is like a, a meditation place for him and his ideas, like what mm. we saw in chapter 106, you know. But I guess in regards to his reaction, I think it's completely normal because... For him to react like that when he saw him because it looks a little creepy and probably Armin knows that he must look a little creepy that he's staring at a frozen girl like several days on end <laughs> and then trying to touch yeah. her when he's alone yeah and he even asks hitch not to ban him so this is something he wants to continue to do to come and visit annie so it's it's not that this is a one-shot deal he wants to be able to come back which i thought was interesting mm. so i think you're right in that this is sort of his um I don't know, his sanctuary or something. And it, it almost seems like it is for Hitch as well, because the conversation there kind of indicates that she sits there and talks to Annie as well. So maybe Annie has inadvertently become, you know, the most popular girl yeah. uh, just because she's a good listener. So I love that panel with Hitch at the end, though. How are you this popular when all you do is sleep? Uh, he's yeah. speaking for a huge amount of the fandom there when she says that. I like that Isayama is like indirectly dissing us through his mm -hmm. <laughs> I honestly do not see Annie. The only way I see Annie coming out of that crystal is with founding Titan or Zeke. Some, you know, I can't imagine Porco crushing the crystal and her surviving it. Although she is a Titan. I mean, she could regenerate. But um, I, I feel like it's going to if she could come out, she would have come out by now. So I have to think that it's going to be the same way the wall Titans come out, that it's going to be the founding Titan 
commanding it to happen. Yeah, but like Aaron made him uh, or made Porco buy through the crystal when it came to like uh, Miss Tiber. So he was forcing uh, Porco's or well, the Jaw Titan's teeth all the way through where I think as with Ani, they can be a bit more careful. They don't, I, I think she would be able to come out of it alive if she even still is alive in there. Yeah, exactly. What if the story ends and Annie is still in the crystal? I would laugh. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine? I would be brilliant. Oh. I would, if that's the case, that's the case. You know, she's a museum artifact at that point. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. So for the bigger questions, what do you think about Hitch's hair? One of my friends who's very fond of Hitch made the comment that Hitch is not the kind of girl to keep the same hairstyle for five years. So I thought that was a pretty good characterization. She's the kind of character who is going to change with the times. And so I was really happy mm. to see Hitch's makeover. Yeah, it makes sense. But I still like the old hairstyle better. I think it looked better on her. But I'm just glad to see her again because she's, uh, she's such a fun character. Like so sassy and doesn't have time for anything or anyone. Not even like her military job. She's like, nope, I'm just going to sit here and watch this rock. Yeah, and she doesn't have all the the self-righteous ideas that a lot of the characters in the in the survey corps have, you know. So it's kind of refreshing to see the military police characters. They just seem more lighthearted most of the time, you know, mm. except for Rogue. Well, I really like, too, that in this character, her um, intelligence, you know, the as she and Armin are leaving, she kind of teases Armin about his interaction with Annie. And she's like, yeah, great that you're doing this. But do you know what's going on out here? And she basically restates what the problem is, that the Survey Corps is distrusted by people and that they're not doing a single thing to fix the situation. So here is Hitch not only being, you know, kind of sassy and charming, but also sort of crystallizing exactly what's wrong right now, that the people who are supportive of Aaron are out there talking to the journalists and planning stories and feeding, you know, they have a spin machine going where they're, where they're setting the narrative and that the military is doing absolutely nothing to stop it. They're doing nothing to counter it. And it's kind of interesting that the military has chosen to hide so much information because I don't see exactly the problem as to why they couldn't reveal the, the rumbling to the, to the people, you know, basically what they're actually doing to protect them from from the, uh, their enemy threats, because the, main, the maintenance of the rumbling over 50 years while they develop as a nation was the main plan to the survival of Paradis. So we, for the military government to show that to the people that they had a plan and they were going to go with it, would just ascertain the people that the military were actually doing something in regards to that. Because as the people are seeing, they only see Aaron doing anything to solve the situation with Marley. So what the people are seeing is Aaron as the person that is acting and actually doing something to protect their country, while the military hasn't released anything of information as to what what their plan would be and what exactly they were going to do to protect Paradis. So it only makes sense that the people would only side with Aaron. Yeah, they most certainly did. And I think we discussed it in the, the last podcast as well. They're not giving any information out and... They're kind of afraid that it will let uh, things spiral out of control, but by not giving the the people anything, any information, and you know, imprisoning the hero of Paradis, 
They're only making the situation indeed worse for themselves. Yeah, you can't blame the crowds because this is all that they know. This They are acting on the information that they have been given and nobody is there countering that information. And I think that's really surprising to me because in the next section, we get into Darius Zackley speaking with Aaron and Mikasa and he is such a shrewd politician. I mean... Why he's sitting there in his glass tower, staring at the crowd and doing nothing. I mean, if I was going to, you know, if if Erwin was alive, people think, well, Erwin would be able to calm this. He would, you know, he's um, smart enough that he would spin this, that he would know what to say. People would, um, he could win people over. I think Darius Zackley could do that too. And he's doing nothing. He's sitting up there with his, in his pretty office with his machine, letting the revolt happen. And, you know, when I read over his conversation with Aaron and Mikasa, he's so good and schmarmy and such a good politician. Like, I know it'll never come back in the storyline, but I have to think he's allowing this to happen for some reason. And, you know, he's dead now, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) But I just... I can understand Hanji and the others being very, uh, what's the word, not immature, but, um, you know, they're not very savvy politically. I can accept that. But Darius Zackley, this man wrote the book on political savvy, right? On playing the game. So the fact that he did nothing and let this happen is really suspicious to me. I think he just uh, settled down with the power that they have because the military has been in command for the past four years. And they have been quite comfortable in what they, in how they are, and how they have established themselves. And they didn't even have any threat to their power before Aaron and his followers are doing it right now. So you think it was just complacency that they just felt like they had it that didn't matter? Yeah, I just felt like they were complacent that they were gonna go through with the plan that of maintaining the. Uh, of the maintenance of the power of the rumbling, they were just gonna have somebody else inherited the power of the uh, of the Aaron and the founding titan, and then have Historia inherit the beast titan, and Aaron just had established himself as a nuisance that they were just gonna get rid of. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess his he was gonna take care of the situation, and he was gonna do that by killing Aaron Yeager, so giving the power to somebody else and then spinning it. But it seems like a pretty Poor plan. So, Luna, I wanted to ask you, last month, you I'm going to quote you. You said <laughs> that you were tired of all the exposition and the slow chapters and that you wanted some meat with your vegetables. That was an exact quote. So I have to ask you, was this what happens next? Was this enough to satisfy you? Was this your literary meat? Um, Pretty much, yeah. I think I posted a, in the, the bingo thread on Reddit as well, like, that I really wanted to see a bomb go off this chapter, and boy, did I get my wish. Did you mean a literal bomb? Did you actually call it? No, I just meant, like, I want something big and spectacular to happen. (laughs) And it did. It was uh, was a spectacular shit show, literally. Unbelievable. It was, was, um, I didn't quite expect it, uh, to be honest. I thought he, we would see more of him, but I'm so glad so incredibly happy that we will never have to see the shit machine again <laughs> but because that means we will never have to see it in the anime again because seeing that scene animated was the worst thing that i've seen in a long time like with the noises and nope nope so 
This was the best thing that happened all chapter, as far as I'm concerned. So it's not so much that Zachley's dead, it's that the no. machine is dead. Yeah. That's what you're... Ha- yeah. So they could have just blown up the machine and you would have been content. Pretty much. Just like, I don't even ever want to hear that thing again. Nope. I think you boars know nothing about art. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I'm a Philistine. I, I cannot appreciate the art. Yes, I have no appreciate. So, Renan, are you going to miss the machine? Yes. I mean, it was <laughs> such an impactful scene, and it means so much for Darius Eckley's character. To see it go, it's basically, it's fitting to see the shit machine go with Darius Eckley's character. <laughs> I just love, I love this whole conversation. I think my personal favorite part of this chapter was his conversation with Aaron and Mika, or Armin and Mikasa because he looks so stately. You know, his hands are gently clasped. He's speaking so calmly. He's making sense. You know, he's just like the perfect politician. And then the side eye over at the machine. I mean, I just, it was, I really just, this is Isayama at his finest. And I know I say that all the time, but this is absolutely to make Zachary's death hilarious and horrifying and to have him be so stately before it happens. I mean, everything about this was perfect. Absolutely perfect. I think it was interesting uh, what Darius actually actually brought to the story because they did a whole coup d'etat just to overthrow a, a mischievous government, and the person that they put in charge is Darius Eckley. You know, it's something yeah, a monster. Like, it's something kind of poetic about that because that happens all the time in uh, in real life. You know, and what a lot of people like to deny ever since the the uprising arc is that they weren't. You know, setting up a was nothing else but a military dictatorship. Yeah, that's the thing. Nobody's even mentioned his story at this point. Armin, Mikasa, even in passing. I have to wonder about that as well. I mean, they have a queen who's incredibly popular. They have crowds rioting. They have the person who could smooth things over in Historia, and yet nobody's even speaking about her. She's their queen and their friend, and nobody has said a word. Yeah, but a queen, apparently, in name only, she doesn't really have any true power. Like, she set up the orphanage, um, and that's basically the as far as her uh, her powers go. Well, the power she and, has, though, is political, is um, popular support of the people. And if, if ever the Survey Corps needed that, it would be now. I mean, the people love her. Yeah. They do, so I was just interesting it, that here you've got riots going on for days, long enough that the newspapers are reporting on it. And again, they're completely ineffectual, doing nothing to counter it. And this would be the time to bring in the beloved queen and have her issue a statement. I mean, in the real world, that's how it would work. I think exactly, exactly in the military government, we're about to make a stand, statement. Because in the past chapter, in 109, in their talk with uh, Kiyomi, we were under the impression that they were preparing to make to do the test with the with the rumbling. Yeah. So they were gonna take Zeke to make the test, but they were probably going to make somebody else inherit the Titan of uh, Eren. And we see those people actually that they were about to enter the the room in which Zekli is, and it's kind of interesting to see that the military were way ahead of Armin, in which. Basically, Armin, in chapter 108, he deduced what the actions of the military would be. So he was trying to act in, uh, in, a, in a way that maybe he could convince Eren to talk to them and 
avoid having his titan being taken away. But the military were just way ahead. They already had making, made their decisions in regard, in regard to, the, to that. So probably as they tested the rumbling, it would convince the people that the military had something uh, ready, you know? That's one thing you definitely get from this chapter is that Armin and Mikasa have been making this request repeatedly and being ignored because Zackley even admits that he'd been stalling. Well, he admits that some time had passed since their first request. So mm. clearly they have made multiple requests and Zackley's been stalling this whole time. So I do think that that feeds into exactly that. They knew what they wanted long before uh, or maybe the same time Armin picked up on it. But Zackley being the sleazebag that he is, uh, didn't want anything interfering with his plan, which was to give the power to somebody that he wanted. Well, moving on to the, the actual explosion, right? I think it's wonderful that it's one of my favorite scenes in the manga, that Isayama spent like four pages on the explosion and seeing Zekli's corpse coming out from the crowd's perspective, from the side under uh, like the military police perspective, and seeing how Armin and, and Mikasa are seeing the explosion, like we got all of these different angles, and I thought, like, I just thought it was beautiful. This is going to be animated someday. We're going to actually get to see this in color with music. Yeah, and then Zekli's half mangled corpse lands in front of the crowd, <laughs> in which is like one of the best moments in the series, right? The crowd yelling in favor of Zekli's death. And offering their hearts. That's going to be such a, a chilling moment when it finally gets animated. I love the posts about how Erwin did not die for this. I mean, this was Erwin's, you know, <laughs> Sasageo, and now the crowd is using it in a very different sense. And you can see, actually, actually, you can see one of the soldiers actually crying about Zachary's death, and they they're looking over to the crowd while they're offering their hearts and uh, celebrating his death and. I just think it's a wonderful corruption of a of <laughs> of this team, you know, that we have been seeing since the start of the series. Why why is it is there something wrong with us that we think that this is wonderful? I mean, I have to sometimes wonder about myself as a person that this is like I was impressed with how quickly they all recovered. I mean, it's not a normal reaction to have your uh head of state come you know, his body to come flying out a window and land and people to recover so quickly. But, you know, it makes sense that the crowd would immediately start chanting to me. If this is what they were calling for, uh, then they would certainly view this as like an answer to their to their hopes and dreams, like almost like divine providence at this point. Yeah. And it definitely, you know, you have to keep in mind what country they're living in. You know, they they are, um, you know, facing extinction. They're basically the whole world has turned against them now. And then they're being run by a military dictatorship who will not tell them anything that's going on, basically, and is, from their point of view, not working in their best interests. I'm sure there's many real-life examples, or we could imagine that the response would be the same if the same thing happened in uh, certain other countries. And I mean, it, it's just kind of wonderful because we're not seeing this from the, from the people's perspective, you know? Most of our, of the characters that we know are from inside mm. the military, so we we actually root for them. We root for the military, and then to see how yeah. the people perceive their own military, how they per perceive their own government, and then reacting like such a savage way, you know, I think it's 
wonderful. I don't know. I think Isayama set up <clears throat> one of the best moments in the series in this chapter. Well, and that's why we do have a faction of the fandom who feels like the Survey Corps is evil, that they absolutely are the, the ones that are culpable here and um, worthy of whatever happens to them. I think that that's still a very fringe group that doesn't see the Survey Corps as the heroes, but they're out there. I've seen their voices. Well, there's a lot of people that actually like see themselves in the crowd, right? That they want mm -hmm. Aaron free, that they think that the military is being uh, complacent, that they're not doing enough, you know? Even though they know all the details, that they know the plan that the military has, they know what they were that they were planning to maintain, use the maintenance of the, the the rumbling to keep themselves to keep their enemies at bay. And I actually thought that was a pretty good plan, you know? They were just sacrificing a few people from their country in service of keeping the rest of them all safe from the, the threat of the world, you know? And I think that what Aaron and Zeke are planning, whatever it is, it's just a lot more unsure, you know? The military doesn't have any, any, any reason to believe them. I mean, Aaron was basically went rogue and then he doesn't communicate with them anymore. Zeke was basically the number one enemy of Parades until like four years ago, four to two years ago. Well, I would say he's still the enemy, and yet um, maybe that's why they didn't want the people to know about Zeke as well, because rather than just chanting for Aaron's release, they'd be chanting for Zeke's as well. And it does seem like the military is still very suspicious of Zeke, whether or not the audience, we as the readers... Um, you know, there are people who absolutely believe, like for me, from an in-story perspective, I can understand why the crowd is acting as they're acting. I don't think we're supposed to see them as being correct. I mean, they definitely look brainwashed. They look insane. They look um, zealous. But it makes sense from an in-story perspective that they're behaving this way. But what's interesting to me is, like you were saying, Renan, the fandom, there's a fraction of the fandom who absolutely feels they know everything and they feel that way, too. Um, so it's interesting how we all, I guess that's a sign of a good story, right? We're all reading it, the same words, the same panels, and yet we're all taking different sides in this. Yeah, there's a lot of different interpretations that the fandom has been having. And it, there have been people that have been siding with all sides, even with Marley, you know, even with the actions of the Marleyans, because they are seeing now what the dangers of maybe a country that will, is about to wipe out the rest of the world. And maybe they're seeing, oh my God, maybe the Marleyans were right, you know, maybe the audience <laughs> are not, are not, uh, are gonna destroy the rest of the world. So maybe the Marleyans weren't as wrong in that sense. And you see all the factions that we have in this series. It's basically a military dictatorship that was previously an isolationist monarchy controlling all of the people and being completely totalitarian. Now they are a military dictatorship. Then we have over the sea another faction that is basically an, uh, an empire that is also run by a military and that has oppressed multiple people and put in uh, audience in internment zones and has been in a uh, conquest of the rest of the world for like the past 100 years and then we have a third faction that is Aaron and his followers that have essentially became terrorists you know 
Well, I think we could throw Magath in there. In each of these instances, there's some group of people who's working to change the status quo. I mean, the status quo is alive and well. We're seeing that in the Paradise government with Zachley, right? You get the power, you want to keep the power, you do everything you can to oppress those who want to take your power. Marley, we see that too. But then we have people like Magath who realize that that's wrong and want to make a change. We have people like Hanji and Armin who, you know, maybe we need to show the world a different face. I mean, there are factions within each of these groups that are the more moderates, and those are the ones that need to come to the table if this is ever going to be settled, because the pattern now does not work. And that's one of the things that makes the series, the the factions in this series feel so natural, because there's all kinds of people within them. That it's not everybody just agreeing to one thing. It feels that each one of these is, is, is alive, you know, that is something real, that there are people uh, fighting for all of their different perspectives and ideologies within each of these factions. Well, I hope the moderates win. I like the fact that there are some moderates on both sides. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice to see seeing the cycle of violence and oppression repeated over and over and seeing it happen again among the people we've considered our heroes is very frustrating and very, you know, it's hard to watch it happening. But I do admire that Isayama did it. Like you said, here you're taking our heroes, making them our villains, making them no better than the people that we were ready to assume are villains. So let me ask you guys this, moving on, we move now into the conference room, the aftermath of the bombing. Is that Rogue? I think we're seeing Rogue again? Yes, it's Rogue. I'd like to just point out that now maybe we're going to see a shift in the perspective of the military about the survey corps. Because after Armin says it was the recruits that entered Zachary's room to bring his custom chair. Uh, (laughs) Custom chair. (laughs) The military is in the room like they glare at Hanji, Armin, and Mikasa, you know, as if they were part of Aaron's faction. So maybe we're going to see a shift in the perspective of the military back to what we saw in the beginning of the series. The the central government not seeing the survey corps in a good light. Well, I don't think it was like that they are with Aaron, but that they are the ones who are creating this mess and letting things get out of hand because the survey corps is a mess right now. Like, the military police is doing their part. Uh, I don't know what the garrison is doing except for drinking wine and eating an apple underneath a tree. But there's a lot of things going on and brewing underneath the surface. And I think the look that especially Niall gave them was more like, what in the hell is going on in your faction? What are you guys doing? And it's interesting because uh, the military also always saw the survey corps as the most rebellious of the uh, of them all, of the corps. So... They, now we are seeing here again all the young soldiers joining up the, with, with the Survey Corps, and they are very idealistic, you know, they are eager to make a change, just like we saw in the beginning of the series. But now we see this in a different light, you know, when we are seeing this through the, the lenses of the, the current government in control. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's um, it's interesting to see that the story has come so far, and yet the survey score is still the same. It's attracting, you know, people that are idealistic. And, you know, in this case, though, it's people that are idealistic in a way that is not in keeping, you know, with the original promise. Or maybe it is. These are the people who are creating the rebellion. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting to say. And I see that panel that you're talking about. I mean, it's like... Survey Corps against the entire military. Once again, they're staring them down. And uh, thank goodness that little guy interrupts them. 
to let them know Aaron has escaped from his underground cell because, uh, you know, that could have been a tense moment. And it's something interesting because previously we know that the underground uh, cells were, at least they, they imagined that it was enough to to keep the, the shifters under, under control, you know? They had it planned for Reiner and Bertolt to be captured in one of these cells underground, for Annie to be captured in one of these. So we don't know if it would have worked, but they have also kept Eren multiple times on, in, in one of these cells. And now with the power of the Warhammer Titan, maybe we see that it's really like he said, you know, they can't keep him down anymore. He has three Titan powers, and one of which can basically create anything out of thin air, any hardening structure out of thin air. And it looks like, judging from the state of the prison cell, that he didn't need to transform to do that, that he's now able to control those powers, uh, you know, without doing a full transformation, which is what they didn't expect to have happen. Well, I mean... Um, it could have been like he did before, and like we've seen Anitil in like the Lost Girls OVA. A partial transformation? Yeah. Yeah, clearly that's what he did, or else the entire building would have come down with him. But instead he was just able to create, I guess, somehow a tunnel out using the Warhammer Titan's power. I was I don't have it open now, but I was looking back at our chapter 110 poll, and one of the things that we asked what people wanted, most wanted to see, Aaron breaking out of prison. I was happy to see that happen, too. I know a lot of people wanted that, and, um, you know, he kind of dynamically did it that way, sealing the hole behind him as he fled. And then, of course, to see him with this um, Anakin Skywalker moment, you know, <laughs> throwing the cloak on and meeting his followers. I mean, that was just uh, a really really good moment there's something that i really wanted to know is why the fuck aaron took off his shirt you know because he had a shirt in, he had a shirt in prison and then he took it off to make a run for it for some did reason. he ever have shoes or did they refuse him shoes in prison No, i don't think he had shoes in prison either like he was sitting on the bed i think without his shoes on but he definitely had a shirt that has to be the Zeke Yeager influence because Zeke can't transform and keep his top on. So clearly this is an evidence, an indication that Zeke is controlling Aaron Yeager because Aaron can no longer keep a shirt on. I guess he really took a hint on how to inspire his followers, right? Yes, <laughs> with his abs. Well, I did a crack theory once that the reason that Zeke always appeared topless was because as the beast, t you know how apes, like one of the things they do to assert control is like thump <laughs> their chests and puff their chests out. Like it's part of being an ape, right? So here Aaron has learned his brother's ways and knows the way to intimidate this crowd is to walk up to them topless with his, did we decide it was a 10 pack? Uh, it is I a think so. <laughs> yeah, it's. I counted um, it. I, uh, yeah, I, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm Why so, does Isayama do this? Why does he love drawing chests so much? This is, how many chests is this, six? He has drawn Irvin, Levi, Aaron, Armin, Zeke. Reiner. And Reiner. So, I guess. I feel like we've gotten, like, we've been getting a lot of shirtless Reiner and Aaron, like, every chapter. It's either Reiner shirtless or Aaron shirtless. Like, I think it just shows where uh, Isayama interests lie, you know? That's all. I think so, too. I think you're right. I would have to agree as well. <laughs> Luckily, they align with my own interests, so... <laughs> but going forward to where Eren actually meets with Flock 
and the rest of the followers. It's interesting to see how Flock basically explains the whole situation to him, which shows that Flock, uh, in Aaron's absence, he was basically the leader of all of this uh, faction, you know? And to see Flock's character come from uh, what we saw recently introduced in the anime episode as a uh, just a greenhorn, you know, a new recruit to be the leader of one of the leaders, main leaders of this terrorist faction is kind of amazing. Who could have imagined that Flock would be the one to actually murder Darius Zackley in a terrorist attack, you know? All right, Flock Forrester, of all people, takes down Darius Zackley. If that's not the headline, then I don't know what is. I'm sure Flock was happy to be like the de facto leader in Aaron's absence. Well, Aaron was in prison, but I think uh, he's okay with uh, handing the role back to Aaron now that he's out and about. Yeah, he gave everything everything Aaron needed, and now it's time to pass the powers back to him. And Flock indicates, too, just how many people in the Survey Corps are involved in this, which is a little bit frightening. I wonder if they will all reach um, Zeke's location at the same time, like Aaron and the, um, you know, the carriage with Hanji, Onyankopon, and Mikasa and Armin. Well, and that's the most interesting thing to me. So we see the next morning, um, you know, Aaron, it's it's sunset in the panel before Aaron is going to start his his hike to find Zeke. And then we get the next morning, which is these five mm. official military carriages taking off for someplace. Armin feeling very uncomfortable about whatever decision has been made. I mean, it's obvious to me that that meeting that was interrupted a decision was made, and they're mm. going to act on that decision. Mikasa looks completely sh- shell-shocked. She's horrified. Whatever they've decided on is not sitting well with her. And then we have Armin basically feeling guilty and trying to convince himself and Mikasa that what they're doing is the best thing. And I think of all the questions we asked in the poll, that's the one I was most interested in hearing what people had to say. Where are they going? And why is Armin and Mikasa so uncomfortable with this? I mean, my feeling is they're definitely going to where Levi is to confront Zeke, to take Zeke's power. I think they can imagine that the first thing that Aaron would do is try to reunite with Zeke. And I think that this whole thing is setting up to maybe maybe a battle between Zeke, Aaron, and fighting against Levi and his squad. I am looking forward to that and also if they would arrive on time then probably Mikasa would have to fight Louise as well oh that would be cool maybe Mikasa will arrive at the point that Levi is killed by Aaron you know setting up a whole uh, a permanent divide between the, the two of them what is wrong with you people no I'm just kidding you should be happy mom your two I lovers am. are reunited in heaven <laughs> <laughs> I can't see Levi dying, but I do see this battle. I do see this being exactly what we think, you know, Zeke and the Jaeger brothers versus Levi versus the Survey Corps. I think it's going to be fantastic. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to see uh, Levi die by one of the, no. the comrades that he had the most trust in to see how cruel the, the world is, actually? I think it would no. be kind of poetic, you know? Mm. I think there's going to be a big battle. But I just cannot see Levi dying right now. I think it's um, I think it's still a bit too early. I think he's going to be there uh, a bit closer to the final battle. 
Oh yeah, he has to kill Zeke. Levi has to, Levi absolutely has to kill Zeke. He can't die. His death has to be after Zeke is dead or at the same time at his hands. I accept nothing else. I don't agree. I don't think that would be like a second Titan. It's the same as saying like Connie should be the one to kill Zeke. I think that would be it would be good to see uh, Levi die at this moment because he has done all that he has to do. All of his storylines have basically been done except for like except killing Zeke, killing Zeke but, which is big. But I like to see maybe another situation in which which a character fails to do what they set out to do, you know? We well, he's already that done that. He to, already We have we have seen that happen to Irvin, to Hannes, and I think that would be fitting for the for the the story, you know? And to see Levi being killed by the person that he taught so much by the the uh, by Aaron, you know, uh, the person that he taught all about trusting in your comrades or trusting in yourself to see his lesson turning, turn against him at the end of the day, you know, because Aaron is trusting in himself right now and not really relying on his comrades to see what Levi said him that's told him and taught him to turn against him in the end would be something interesting. And Isayama himself has said that Levi is at a moment that he had he's the remnant of the old survey corps you know and he doesn't exactly have something ready in store for him what's interesting is the story has given him nothing he had the moment where he supposedly killed zeke but since then he's been he has been the just a side note in you know he's a babysitter he's hanji's sidekick he's done absolutely nothing interesting um he's not even in most chapters for more than a sentence or two so it's going to be very interesting i mean i'm sure he's going to have more big moments um, i'm sure they're coming but i don't i again by the time you know how this manga works right next chapter we're probably going to have it's going to be six months before everybody gathers at the spot in the forest, you know, the way chapters go. So, you know, we're looking forward to this battle, but so much could happen between now and then. I mean, that's the problem with the slow drip format of a monthly manga. This, this could be months that we're waiting for this battle to take place. But I think it's exactly because uh, Levi has been not doing a lot that I think Isayama should leave his character on a high note and basically, uh, and and his story with him be getting killed because of a betrayal. I think it would be the most interesting thing to happen to Levi at this point. Well, you can think that. It's allowed. <laughs> I wonder, though, like, he, he's one of the most popular characters and his merchandise also sells really well, so... Well, we've seen, though, that a character death boosts sales. So if that's what I was thinking, that was I was thinking like (laughs) Irvin was also a popular character. He was, but he became more popular after he died. I think the same with a lot of characters. And I think what's what is important about Irwin's death is that even though he didn't get to see the basement, his death was still very satisfying. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't hopeless. It wasn't he got to die being the man he thought he was, you know, he, he got to die with a smile on his face, surrounded with people that cared about him. And I can't imagine Levi's death being anything less than that. It has to be satisfying. Don't you think? I mean, and if he's killed by Aaron in a fit of rage, I don't see that being satisfying for people who have, you know, invested in this character and love this character. I can see the fight happening between, you know, the two sides. 
I don't know if uh, Levi will be murdered by no. There's the no Restorationists way. or e or Zeke or Aaron. What I do uh, think is possible is that he will be severely injured and kind of like not maybe be able to participate in the battlefield anymore. Well, for humanity's strongest to be injured, I mean, that's that has happened before. And it certainly, you know, even though you're humanity's strongest, you're still human. I think that is the thematic of SNK. Most of the deaths haven't been a hero's death or something dramatic before they go out. And I'd like to see that keeping uh, being being the, the rule, you know. I, like I would argue with that, though. Action. Because even even um, Carla's death, granted she died and it was horrible, but she saw her children running to safety. There was something there that she could latch on to. And even at the end when she cried out, don't leave me, at least she knew they were going to be safe. And I'll even go back to Mike's death. I mean, that was another example of a horrible death. And yet his final thoughts were of Nanaba and, you know, the courage to, you know, it wasn't... I would say Bertolt and Hannes's were the most pointless and terrible. Just quickly thinking through the characters, at least with some of the others, um, Ian, Mitabe, you know, they died, but they knew humanity. They saw Aaron carrying that rock. They knew he was going to seal that. It wasn't a pointless death. And I can't imagine if those characters had at least something good come of their death, that it won't be the same way with um, Levi. I don't know. I think Isayama is setting up for a major tragedy in the story, and I don't. I don't think it would be. It would be just a a switch and bait if it didn't do something of the sort. And the clear uh, the thing that I see the clearest is Levi getting betrayed and dying by what was one of his friends. Well, we'll hold you to that, and if it comes true, you can tell me I told you so. I feel like we're already like living through the like the depressed, you know, tragedy phase of the story. I feel like the first part was kind of like, okay, we're living in this horrible world, um, but at least we have dreams, we have aspirations, we can make a change. And what we're seeing right now is everything just fall apart, and you know, people realizing that the future that they had in mind will never come true, and kind of succumbing under the weight of the reality that is right now and i wonder if like the the ending of the series will end on a more well not positive but like on a better note that you have to you know accept that things will not turn out the way you want them to but they will they will become better in the end i have to think that's the case and it's not just me being an optimist but there's always like we said before there's always been a faction who's fighting for change and they've been our heroes and, you know, people who don't want to follow the status quo. And that, that has to be rewarded. It was rewarded in the Uprising arc. I have to think it'll be up rewarded at the end. And, well, it could happen, but I don't see it happening until whatever the final arc is. And maybe this is, maybe, you know, we're at the final arc, which, you know, this um, is the chapter that closed the volume and presumably the arc. So I do think the next one is it, right? This is it. We're in the home stretch now. No more arcs after this? What do you think? I think it... Either we have one big arc or two more arcs. I think this arc is going to end up being the biggest one, and then it's going to end. But there is also the possibility of having two arcs, which I think is a bit lower. I think I, I would expect this arc to be the final one, stretching like 30 chapters or 25 chapters. I think this could be like, I, I thought we were moving towards like the world war. 
arc, but I feel like this this is like the in-between arc, maybe. Well, and if Peak is on Paradis, then we can assume, I, I mean, we can't assume anything, but we can assume that she's not alone. If this situation is going to resolve, if Magath, Peak, Porco, Reiner, Colt, if the key players are all on Paradis, now the action could end here. It doesn't have to go back it to the could. world. It could. The thing is, though, like, uh, we could have the inner turmoil in Paradise. We could have Falky, Falky, Falco and Gabby um, together, and we can have, like, um, Peak and possibly the other warriors infiltrating, um, you know, maybe also finding Ani and taking her back with them. But, you know, the the rest of the world is coming, and I think it was six months that the Magath gave as a time frame. Six months. Yeah, so either they resolve everything right now within those six months, or they're dealing with the aftermath of everything, and then in six months' time, the rest of the world is going to come knocking at the gates. I have to think they're going to settle this in six months, and that Kiyomi and Magath will somehow present whatever the resolution is to the rest of the world. I just... I. I can't see this story getting bigger and bigger and bigger. At some point, the action has to ramp down. And all I've been seeing is, you know, the potential for things getting bigger. So I'm, I'm actually, you know, I mean, it's been a lot, this 10, 10 years this manga has been going on. I'm, I'm ready for it to start Nine. wrapping up. Yeah. Yeah. We're heading into 10. So please mm. free me from this curse. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I want my life back. Yeah. Yes. What are we if not slaves to this torment? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So like you guys yes. have devoted many years of your lives to this, I guess. Arena's been in as long as I have, man, and I know I'm yeah. tired, so he's got to <laughs> be getting tired too. Like I'm still so invested. I just want to know the end is in sight, and if it turns into World War, then the end is not in sight. I would love for this to wrap up on parodies. Magath is effectively in charge of Marley. You've got Kiyomi, who's in charge of Hizuru. You know, if they can all come to an agreement, however this ends, um, maybe maybe it ends there, and the rest of the world accepts it. Although I know a lot of people would love to see Aguino again. Maybe Aguino will be in the closing chapter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's going to be leading leading the the global army against. Marvel. Yes, you know Aguino's that. on his way. We can't let him just be a uh, red shirt character. Uh, well, anything else on the chapter? I think we've covered it pretty well. I think the only thing is that mm-hmm. maybe uh, Peak might not only be searching; she might be searching for information on the whereabouts of Zeke. I think that Reiner and Oracle are also in the island, maybe Colt too, and they might be searching for Zeke to capture him back and take his power back, or the others too, you know, because they w- would aim at what Paradis has the, the strongest, right? Their Titan powers. Because if they are in Paradis, in a, in a small force, I can only imagine that they are going to try to take the Titan powers back. Well, and Peak, Peak apparently, despite her size, despite her ability, she's quick and she's stealthy. And the fact that she's watching the uh, convoy of wagons leaving and side-eyeing them, I can't imagine she's not following them. So 
whether or not she has a way to report back to the others. Um, I mean, she's incredibly quick and incredibly bright. So I am fully expecting that she knows they're going to Zeke and she's going to be following them. So it's going to make for a very interesting uh, explosive moment when they all get there. Because once again, I guess Peek and Porco will be joining the battle as an unexpected element that uh, the Survey Corps didn't see coming. We might have another battle like what happened in Chapter 103, but actually with a three factions fighting. Mm -hmm. The, the Marleans, the Aaron, Aaron's followers, and Zeke, mm -hmm. and the Survey Corps and the rest of the military. That would be fun to see. I mean, Our I think idea that... of fun is really sad. <laughs> I mean, Yay, we, yeah. people are going to die. Yay. People we <laughs> no, love. Yay. I really like to see something like, uh, have, you, <laughs> have you ever seen that fan art in which Zeke is shirtless and holding, holding, Aaron, holding Levi's head on his hand? What is wrong head. with you, Rena? This is not... <laughs> like, Luna, that might we, be can, interesting can... to see. That would be quite shocking. <laughs> and that wraps up our discussion of the manga. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point to leave the manga discussion at. Next, we'll be discussing the latest uh, episodes of the anime, SC and K group that um, Renan is active in as the quality control. And... Finally, we will be discussing some questions we got from our listeners. So, um, yeah, we'll have a short break and uh, see you soon. So since we've last um, had our podcast, there have been a few new episodes of the anime. In fact, as we're recording this, there's only one episode left to go. So this might be a good time to do uh, just some general ideas of what we thought about it. And I think we'd also need to mention the uh, the big news from last episode was not about uh, Keith Shottis and his relationship with Carla, but it was that Flock is a ginger, which surprised and I would say horrified many people in I the mean, fandom. Flock is such a compelling character that has a the love of so many people in the community so it's quite shocking for <laughs> them to have a break of their expectations for the character right uh, countless fan arts depicted him as a blonde you know basically almost almost as uh, in a lot of them it was like he was like side by side with John almost as a close brother to him so it's quite shocking to see him like that. I, I think I think blonde hair couldn't contain Flock Forrester. You know, it had to, he had to make a statement even in his hair color. I was really shocked when I saw it because at first um, the the stills from the episode leaked, and I was like, "Who is that guy? I don't recognize him." And then everyone was saying, "Oh, it's Flock," and I'm like, "Wait, what? How?" Because it's not just his hair color, but his hairstyle is different than it was in the manga. Also, his face looks very different to me. So I didn't recognize him at all. Actually, his design of, of, the, of his hair is actually very accurate with uh, chapter 89 and chapter 90. That he has that twirl in, in his hair like that is going crazy. And because Flock had a very uh, uncertain design to him, character design, because it changed a lot during the Return to Shigan Shin arc. 
He really did. As a, a member, when he was first introduced as a character, we nicknamed him um, Miniba because we thought Flock looked like Nanaba, and a lot of us thought that Flock was female. So it's uh, interesting to see that the anime team has changed all of that. It's clear he's not Nanaba and he is not female. We also saw the culmination of Historia's punch with um, Levi. Since we last spoke, uh, we discussed in a previous podcast that Mikasa was the one given the role of telling him to punch her. And I think we were mostly okay with that. I mean, it's not a perfect situation, but um, I was um, really happy that they still made the punch kind of impactful. And it really was a beautiful moment. Did you agree? I think uh, the that moment had more importance with what Levi had gone through than Historia getting her vengeance or whatever, you know? It was all like a combination of Levi's arc. I, I don't think it was a combination of Historia's arc. So I, I still think it fits at the end of the day. I mean, the whole point of that scene was that um, Levi was reminded of what he had at present and that there was this group of people that, you know, saw him as one of them that wasn't afraid of him or viewed him as a monster or an abnormal. And yeah, it was um, it was a great scene. And I'm really happy that it was animated and... I'm sorry that we lost the tension between Historia and Levi that was so important to the manga. But in the end, we got the smile, we got the punch, and it was okay. I didn't mind the scene at all. Yeah, just his reaction is very sweet and tender. even And just the way they're all just like anxious for her to punch him. It, it was a funny moment, different from the manga, but still, I think it was a good change. It wasn't a bad or, you know, jarring change. And I don't think in the last couple episodes, they've pretty much followed the manga. Have there been any, I know, um, have there been any really significant moments that they've skipped now with the um, retelling of Shadis' story? No, they have only cut out some uh, some details and, you know, they just cut out con content to make it fit the episode, but nothing too major, I think. I think the major part of the stories of Shadows were were very well portrayed. I don't think I have any problem with it. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, they, they've moved things around again. They've taken away mm. Zachley's conversation with Erwin, and they're pushing that hopefully till next episode. But um, yeah, they skipped the presentation of the long-distance scouting formation, but they did mention that nobody in Erwin's squad died. So yeah, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. I mean, they definitely indicated that special people exist and that he's one of them and that they're one of them. So I, I was I was happy with the episode. Maybe they made Mikasa too much of a too much of Aaron's hound, you know? She's too needy for him. And they cut out like a few moments like with her asking Sasha if she was alright. Or they cut out the moment that uh, Mikasa remembers uh, Grisha. In that, uh, in the last episode, Aaron was supposed to say that I just I don't remember anything uh, except for eating my dad at the moment that I eat my dad from, through his memories. And Mikasa gets bothered by that because she actually liked Grisha, and to see Aaron talking about him like getting brutalized by his pure titan was kind of bad for her. So she just told him to shut up because it was making her uncomfortable. And in the anime, it makes it seem like. Mikasa is just acting like bossy as Eren's mother or something like that, you know? 
Yeah, she's definitely even more dim- one-dimensional in the anime, unfortunately. Um, they also cut a lot of her moments out or like made other people shine. Like Whenever she's fighting, uh, the emphasis is more on, on Levi than on her, even though they're like fighting together and or in tandem. You could see certain panels if you go through the manga where their high difference between Levi and Mikasa is there, but like in the anime, the gap has been closed in to make her, either her look shorter or Levi look taller. Like they definitely have their preferences in the anime of what they want to show and how they want the characters to be well, perceived. Well, I guess it it kind of makes sense in this arc because it's hmm. mostly about Levi, Historia, and Eren. I feel I feel like. So I don't have much of a problem with that. I have a problem with their, with them cutting moments that were really Mikasa's, you know, only Mikasa's. Like when she basically uh, assures uh, Jean, Connie, and Sasha that they're going to follow through with Levi's orders. Stuff like that uh, was cut out mm-hmm. for because they rearranged things. All the characters that got shortchanged were um, Mikasa and Historia. I mean, Historia didn't get that moment of struggle before accepting the queenship. She, you know, we didn't see that internal fight. And then Mikasa, they've done her absolutely no favors um, by just making her Aaron's yes man the whole time. So I agree. But what's interesting, I think, and again, we have one episode left to go, but, um, you know, this season of the anime was built as something that was going to fix the manga, that it was going to, you know, Isayama was excited because he felt like it was his weakest arc and that the anime, the restructuring of it was going to improve it, make it better, you know, give him something he could be proud of. Do you guys think he succeeded? I think it's pretty much the same. It focuses on the different aspects of the story, but the quality is pretty much the same, I think. And I say that because I love the Uprising arc overall. It's one of my favorite chap- uh, uh, arcs. I think it stayed pretty much the same in terms of quality. I think it was a good adaptation for the anime. I would agree with that. You know, with one or two things I would have liked to have changed, Uprising was my favorite arc of all. And we've all had to make some sacrifices. I didn't get several scenes that I want. You know, every it's it's a, it's 12 episodes, right? Um, but all in all, I felt like um, after each episode, I was smiling. For the most part, I felt really good. And it wasn't until I went back and looked at the manga, uh, except for a few things, that I realized what was missing. So I think that's a good sign. I mean, when I sit there and think about it, oh, yeah, that scene was cut. I get a little frustrated. But just sitting and watching it as somebody who enjoys anime and who loves this story... Um, I was pretty happy. Yeah, so the Uprising arc is actually my least favorite arc. So you I was... always, always, Luna. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, what were you going to say? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Go ahead. Okay, so it's actually my least favorite arc. So I was actually hoping that um, the anime would sway me into liking it and that they would... Um, adjust some flaws within this arc. Um, for me, the the first part of the Uprising arc moved very, very slowly in the manga, and I really liked the ending when they were finally in the Crystal Cavern, but before that, I really didn't enjoy it at all, and uh, I'm glad that they changed the pacing. However, the anime, the first two episodes especially, moved so quickly, and they cut out so much um, that it affected the rest of the season, and a lot of characterization 
not only for Mikasa, but for a lot of characters, also for Eren and Historia was um, just wasn't there. And for me, I was just emotionally not as invested as I would like to have been this arc. And that's a shame. So I was, uh, yeah, it's it's I, also my least favorite season so far. Wow. So on, on a scale from one yeah. to 10, the anime, you did not enjoy the uprising arc in the manga. On a scale from one to 10, what would you no. give it? It's difficult because, you know, seeing it like with the music and the fight sequences in this arc have been so good, so much better than season two, which, um, yeah, I'm glad they that they're back and that they have increased their quality of at least like fighting with the three dimensional gear compared to season two. So I did really enjoy that. But in terms of characterization, I didn't. And the first two episodes, oh, it's difficult. So you're still not a fan of Uprising? I'm still not a fan, but it's not like it was the worst thing I've ever seen. I'm, I'm still faithfully watching each episode every week. But And of course, we all can't wait for next week's since um, the teaser yeah. about the ED having something special in it. So I'm really curious what it will be. So, I, Renan, before we go, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about the SNK coloring group, uh, the SCNK, which that acronym continues to like flummox me and confuse me. But can you tell us a little bit about that and your involvement in it? But the SCNK was basically born out of a lot of people in the subreddit in when the, the Marley arc was reaching its peak. A lot of people in the, in the subreddit uh, began to do colorings on the manga because they were very uh, eager to see that in the animated. And so some people, including Endo, that uh, is currently the owner of the server, got together to make the, the SCNK server to do a whole call chapter, because they were receiving a lot of pages that were colored. And they, they basically were at the point that they could almost just take the pages that were being colored in the sub, and almost make a complete chapter. So they got together to make the, the the whole thing. And it has been developing a lot over the past few months. A lot of good colorists have come in to contribute to the chapters. And people have also come a, lot, uh, a long way from the beginning uh, in, in regards to their skills as a colorist. And I joined up basically to help organize the, the way that the chapter were be, was being made because there was a lot of changes in the palettes of the characters, armbands, colors changing from one page to another. So I basically got in to help people organize mm -hmm. because they already had a lot of good talents there, a lot of people that knew what they were doing in regards to their own page. So basically I was just there to help them organize because... Me, personally, I don't actually color any of the pages. I just try to help them with making the palettes, organizing themselves in the scenes that they're doing, and communicating between one another. And I think we have got, come a long way. In the, the beginning of the, 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 the project, they actually made the chapter in one week. They colored the whole chapter in one week. So now we, have, we go through like two to two and a half weeks in production. So it's been quite fun. So for which um, chapter did you do first? I joined up in the <laughs> chapter 106. It was actually quite strange because a lot of people didn't didn't like 
too much the fact that basically a guy that is not a colorist that is not doing anything like it's basically the idea that if you're not coloring you're not contributing anything to the project so why you're here trying to do anything but like over that month uh people already uh were very receptive of me hopefully i did my part in the in the project and that's what i like to keep doing for as much as i like but people have been quite organized as of late. People have already been doing a lot by themselves, so I don't have to help out as much when organizing because they already know the drill, you know. They know how to do a lot of uh, the things that I proposed in the beginning by themselves. So I kind of, I feel like I've been kind of not as important as of late, but I try to help as much as I can. And an example of that would be finding the World War One gas mask and to help give the artist a reference. Yeah, I go after a lot of references, trying to help them, trying to choose the palettes, trying to see if there is something inconsistent between one page and another, trying to communicate between them so that the pages get more consistent. And a lot of people that are also colorists that also do that. But basically, since that's my only job, that's all that I do in the, the project. SCNK is something that I honestly didn't know about maybe until three chapters ago. You know, kind of like you, I'd seen colored panels, people trying their hands at trying to give the flat manga images some more emotion. And um, the first chapter I saw was probably 107, and I was just completely blown away. Like, it, it, it was, you know, it's still a static um, piece of artwork, but it was like anime-level emotion how it made me feel looking at it. So I just was so impressed with um, all of it and the whole team. And that's what made me join the server and look into it because I just had to, you know, say thank you to the people who are doing this because a whole chapter, 44 pages, I mean, all of it professionally done. It's just fantastic. I mean, I don't know if, if you can say professionally done, but a lot of the people in there pour I, their hearts into it and they waste, they, yeah. they, they use up a lot of their time to make the, the chapters as high uh, quality as, as they can, you know. So, I don't know, I feel I felt captivated by the, their colorings also to help, uh, to come and also participate and do my contribution to the, the project. Because I think it's one thing that when the, when the manga is done, it's, it's maybe one thing that people will get to do a reread or to just go through it all uh, for the first time, and maybe they will stumble upon uh, the color chapters, you know, because as of now, there's quite a lot of them. I think we have color chapters since chapter 99, I think. And your goal is to hopefully get the entire Marley arc done, is that correct? Well, it is currently as a side project, but it's coming along quite slowly as of late because we don't have enough people to do all of that, you know? We already have the monthly chapter, and to mm. do the rest of the Marley arc as, as a side project, uh, it just takes a longer time. So what is the process if people want to get involved? If there are people out there doing, you know, their own private colored panels, and I see that all the time, um, how would people get involved if they wanted to pitch in to the effort? Well, the, the server is actually open for everybody. You don't actually have to be a colorist. So if you want to get into the Discord channel and try to learn something about coloring, you can. 
if you already know how to color something and you want to uh, already get in and contribute to the chapter, you can just get into the, the server that we always leave the link to the server in the chapter this in the chapters that we release and whenever we post anything actually it's in the the server the server invite is basically everywhere we can put it in so if you can just leave it like in a, a link people can join freely either to discuss the either to discuss the manga with us or maybe to participate in the project and if somebody doesn't have quite the skills, because like I said, these panels are gorgeous. Like what you guys, I've been using Photoshop for decades and I couldn't do that. Um, if somebody is not quite up to that level, but would still like to contribute, they can work with somebody who's more professional. I would imagine there's probably some easier tasks that people could do. I mean, there there is some collaboration. We have a lot of tutorials and there's a lot of people in the server that are eager to help people getting better because a lot of the members of the SCNK actually got a lot better over time. And we actually made a post a few weeks ago showing how people have gotten better over, over time, you know, like a lot better over, over time. You wouldn't recognize their colorings from back then to the artists as they are now. So I think if you want to get in to get better in the server, there uh, you can do that because a lot of people will help you and there is a lot of uh, resources that people can use to get better in the server. So you're happy to welcome more colorists on board. Uh, are there also any other positions that people could apply for or is it just coloring for now? I think we are uh, organized well enough as it is. We always just need need more colorists. Okay. Yeah, so if anyone listening is interested in joining, um, there's a link below in the comments. So, yeah, feel free to check that out and uh, join the SCNK server. And I'm sure that Rin will be more than happy to show you the way in finding the tutorials and getting the information you need to get started. And even if you're not interested in joining as a colorist, I would just encourage everybody to look at the work that they have done because it is absolutely astounding. Like I um, cannot believe the level of effort that goes into these chapters each and every month. I mean, it's such a treat. And I wish, um, you know, as I'm working on my own blog, doing the black and white manga panels, it's like I want to use the colored ones because they're so beautiful. Yeah, we are always thankful for any kind of words, too. And that people actually appreciate uh, the color chapters because a lot of work goes into it. And there's a lot of people that are very dedicated in the server. Okay, well, we should probably move from here into mail. And Rena, you did receive, uh, when we announced that you would be our guest today, we did get a few comments from people. One of them was from uh, Reddit's Puppet, who wanted to know your opinions on Flock. I think Flock Forster is a great character. Maybe he's not very introspective or has a personality of his own, but he's there to <laughs> basically promote the feelings of at least a part of the fandom and uh, the feelings of the, the other characters, the other minor characters that don't actually have a voice. So Flock is the voice of the all of the characters that don't have enough screen time or the side characters or those, just the ones that appear in the background. So I think he, he is a great tool basically that Isayama is using to give a more uh, deep uh, scenario to basically 
feel the make the world feel more alive. You know, I think Flock gives a lot of that in, to the story. I think Flock is a fun character to to dislike. Yeah, he makes it so easy. He makes it so easy to hate him. He's great. I I do wonder how he's going to die because there's no way, no way <laughs> Flock is going to survive this series. And I don't know if it's going to be an exploding poop machine. Um, <laughs> but that would be cool. Maybe the cape, maybe Aaron's cape will like a gust of wind will pick it up and strangle him or something. I could go for that. I think Flock more than Aaron needs a glorious death. In the a glorious death, yes. for the Eldian Empire and the people... <laughs> that live within it it has to be his hubris and his um close-minded or his um zealous you know focus on a certain way of doing things that's going to be his end so i i don't want it to come anytime soon but i i am looking forward to it i mean besides all uh being a, a being a good character overall i mean his beautiful hair his determined oh. face his unbending <laughs> will They're all, these are all uh, great characteristics <laughs> that make up Clark Forster as the great okay, but, character he is. But uh, Rina, real question, who do you ship him with? Because we know you ship him Aaron. with somebody. With Aaron? Fuck Aaron. Fuck Aaron. He's the yeah, name of the ship. Aaron. <laughs> you can ask him the next question. <laughs> I'm, I'm still so far apart. I'm like, you know what? If Falco had to kill anyone, I hope it's Flock. Oh, like, there you go. That's my whole opinion. I would hmm? go for that because Flock is so. I few months ago, I was actually shipping Flock Casa, but I guess Flock Karen <laughs> makes more sense now. And you've moved on. I know Flock Jean is a really popular ship too. So, wait, are people like unironically shipping like Flock Casa? Yes. No. Where have you been? <laughs> I don't think so, right? People unironically ship everything. Where have you been? Do you not know okay. our fandom? So, before I ask the next question, can you please tell me what your flair is on Reddit? My flair? Yeah, on My Reddit. My flair is basically uh, Mikasa with a confused face raising her hand as if, what the fuck is going on? Or maybe, what the hell did you just say, you know? So it was Tenroku who asked why your flair always fits your comments. So I will admit that I've only seen a few of your comments on Reddit, but... Um... I think it fits so much because I always seem like... I always come up into a thread and then, dude, what what the hell are you talking about, you know? Why uh, didn't you read, like, such chapter or maybe... Didn't you get to know how actual anime production works? Or maybe people are making up strange theories that will break the entire story. And then I come up to make a direct and uh, answer to them. And I don't know. I just feel like the flair just fits all of my all of my interactions within the subreddit because of that. Because I'm always like, what the hell are you talking about, man? Well, from what I've seen, you have some some interesting comments sometimes that not everyone can appreciate, I guess. So I maybe it's other people that have the that should have your flair whenever they see your comments. Just that, you know, I don't I think I feel like I get impressed with some of the comments in a negative way and then I make that kind of face. <laughs> That's how I'm going to imagine you from now on. I'm going to imagine you in this. I don't know what you look like. So this this no, is now you. Yeah, this is now you, Rin. And you are absolutely Mikasa with her hand in the air looking frustrated. 
So there's one final question for you. Uh, this one is from Tacky Girl. And she's asking what your favorite movie and books are and why. That is such a hard question to answer. So I actually gave some gave it some thought. So I don't know if they're all my uh, the uh, exact favorite movies, movie or book. But I actually thought of Steppenwolf by Herman Hesse is one of my favorite books. Africa, it influenced me a lot. And as a movie, it's kind of hard to decide. But I always remember fondly one movie that my father showed me that is 12 Angry Men. Ah, uh, yeah. I like that one too because, you know, it's still, it has aged very well, I think, that movie. Yeah. I think Steppenwolf, because it's a very introspective book and it uh, makes you wonder a lot about the type of person you are. And it poses a lot of interesting questions, I think, about how you live your life. And 12 Angry Men, basically because it's such a, a, a movie that happens in an enclosed space. And I, I don't know, I love the dynamic between the characters and how the story moves forward. And I also have some fond, fond memories of watching it with my dad. Well, thank you for uh, being kind enough to answer our uh, listeners' questions. I think we got uh, some questions in ourselves as well. Mom, would you like to read the first one? Sure. So uh, apparently an Anon wanted to know where we were from. I am from the East Coast of the United States. <laughs> and I'm from the Netherlands, so I have a very Dutch accent. And Randon, did you want to say where you were from? I'm from Brazil, so maybe that's why my uh, accent is even harsher than the, the, both of them. <laughs> and then we had another Anon, from, not Anon, excuse me, a message from the Tumblr user, This World God Only Knows. And it was such a lovely, lovely message. I just wanted to thank them for it. It says, hello, I just learned that it's International Podcast Day today. So I wanted to wish you ladies a lovely day. I don't listen to podcasts very frequently, but I always look forward to yours. And this is probably one of my favorite things to come out of the fandom. If you don't mind my asking, what gave you guys the idea to start a podcast in the first place? So I wanted to thank this world God only knows because what a, I didn't know it was International Podcast Day, but it made me feel very me official. <laughs> that was cool. Um, but as far as the idea to start a podcast, I had to go back through our chat log and basically you said podcast and I said, okay, and that's it. That's that's. That's the gist of it. Yeah, I yeah. think this is something we both wanted to do for a very long time. I think I was kind of hinting at it by asking her or asking you about the Reddit podcast, like, oh, have you heard of it? And uh, your immediate reaction was, yes, I and I also want to do a podcast myself. I've always wanted to do that. And I basically said, OK, let's do it then. And I think neither of us had to really think about how we were going to do it. It was just like, this is what we're going to do. That was really funny going back through our uh, chat. Oh, we like, were so... Like, are we going to do it? And then immediately it was like a list of things. The funniest part was thinking it was going to be easy, which, um, <laughs> yeah, famous last words. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, it won't be much editing. It will be very easy. Yeah. And then, and then we spent hours and hours and hours trying to condense everything and make it sound good. 12 hours later. Yeah. But I think we had that conversation. I actually looked at it. It was um, in July, right? Is that when we had the... Uh... I think, yeah, I think so. 
So it was early July. It's like podcast. Okay, let's do it. I don't know. It's been pretty fun, pretty good so far, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I have enjoyed spending time with you and with the people we've had, regardless of the quality. Um, it's been a lot of fun, but I think I don't think any of us were prepared for how much work it was going to be. No, I, I certainly was not. <laughs> so, and that was the the final question we got. So, yeah, first of all, thank you for everyone who uh, sent in a question. If you want to leave another question for us, you're more than welcome to do so. We'll also be announcing our next guest quite shortly. So. We'll also let you know where you can leave a question for them when we announce it. And yeah, I guess that was it for this podcast. So thank you for listening to our podcast. And we'd also like to thank Renan for agreeing to join us. We've enjoyed having you, Renan. I'm very glad that, to have the opportunity to talk to you in this podcast. Yeah, we're very happy to uh, have had you on. And we'll be back next month with Chapter 111 and hopefully another special guest, as Luna mentioned. And as always, we invite your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for offering your hearts and ears. And until next time. <laughs> Bye. She remembered. Bye. Bye. <laughs>